Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael Fratt. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Trisha. Uh, very happy to have everyone back for Your Name Shall Be Great, the Avram narrative with uh, Rabbi David Silber. Um, it is our uh, second to last session before we take a break, although I think it seems like we're going to be continuing this into the spring. But uh, last time we finished up talking about uh, Chapter 14, Parak Yadalid in Bereshit. Uh, we looked at some of the material related to Sodom and the War of the Four and Five Kings, uh, looked a little bit at the uh, meeting with Melchizedek and the way that that is used liturgically uh, later by the rabbis. Uh, and we started getting a bit into chapter mm -hmm. 15, uh, God's reassurance to Abraham and uh, the introduction to the Brit Benabitarim, the covenant. Uh, so that's where we're going to be picking up this week. Folks should feel free to follow along at home if they've got a Chumash uh, or a Tanakh, but we're also going to be uh, sharing the, the text on the screen for, for anyone who finds that easier. Uh, so with that, I think, uh, Rabbi Silver, we can go ahead and get started. Okay, thank you. Oh, great. Okay. So we'll pick up with chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the chapter of the covenant of Brit, known as Brit and Abitari, and the covenant uh, between God and Avram and Avram's descendants and the focus is the land that Abram's descendants uh, will someday possess. At this point, Abram has no descendants. He does have a promise of a land back in chapter uh, 12. And here the promise of the land is repeated and perhaps uh, presented differently. The promise of the land is actually appeared several times in the narrative of Abraham. Each time is a little different as we'll see. So here we have the uh, chapter of the covenant, a very critical chapter. And as pointed out last week, many of the elements of chapter 15, the covenant can be found already in chapter 14. Chapter 14, as we understood it, is the symbolic possession of the land of Canaan. That is the defeat of the four kings who have captured Canaan by Abraham. And chapter 15 is the promise of that land that has been symbolically captured to be possessed by unnamed descendants of, uh, of, of Avram. So let's look at chapter 15. It's one of the central from a plot standpoint, one of the most central chapters of the book of Breshit, in fact, of the Tanakh in general. So we'll begin it with chapter, beginning of chapter 15. So, after these things, sometime later, it means after chapter 14, and we'll see more about this as we proceed through the chapter. So Avram is told not to fear. The Torah doesn't tell us what his fear is. And the commentaries try to figure out what he's afraid of. Possibly reprisal of the four nations, one possibility. Possibly the fear is that he's gone through this struggle, this battle, and he's given away his portion. He takes nothing from it, not even a shoelace, not even a sroch now. Uh, perhaps he's afraid that he has expended all this effort, has nothing to show for it. So in the beginning of the first pasuk, uh, God reassures Abraham, don't worry, don't worry about uh, the fact that you came away with nothing from this war, it took great risk, but your reward is very great. Now the word sachar is the, 
is the question here, what does God mean when God says your sachar is very great? So from the continuation of the chapter, we see what Avram thinks it means. Avram must imagine from the second pasuk, Avram says, Hashem Elohim God, what could you give me? Anochi Hariri, I go childless. Uben Meshek master of my household, the one in charge of my house, is Eliezer of Damascus. Damascus Eliezer. Previous chapter, Avram had actually gone north of Damascus, north of Damascus. But from Avram's statement, what would you give me? It sounds like he's thinking about some kind of material gift. Actually reminds us of this king of Sodom. King of Sodom had said to Avram in the previous chapter, give me the people and you could have the, the, the possessions. Avram turns to God and says, what would you give me? Remember my, my sachar. Presumably he's thinking of sachar in terms of payment or some kind of compensation. God doesn't respond. So the next verse has Avram again speaking. It produces the speaker as Avram again, even though he's, he's the one been speaking. We have that often in the Bible where a person, or perhaps God is speaking, and sometimes the the book introduces the speaker again. Here we have Vayomer uh, Avram. Avram said, You haven't given me children, offspring. Notice the word hain, which is like, look here. Hain is look here. And the one who will inherit me is my steward, a member of my house, not, not my child. Avram's concern is child. Avram's concern is succession, which is the primary concern of the Avram narrative in general from, from the very beginning. His name is Avram, great father. No success, no obvious successor. It might have been Lot in the previous chapter, but Lot seems to have gone back to Sodom. Maybe that's the fear. Maybe the fear is that Lot is God. Lot at least was a theoretical possibility, but Lot seems to have disappeared gone back to Sodom, who Yoshev bestowed. And now in the next Pasuk, he says, So over here, in contrast to the Hain, the Hain is look here. And but even as he's speaking, and behold, even as Avram is speaking, God's already answering. No, no, it's not, it's not what you think. It's not that you won't have a, someone to carry on your mission. You have an heir, and the heir will be your, your very own child. And in the next verse, interesting verse, he took him outside. So God says to Avram, go outside, takes him outside, look, look towards the heavens, count the stars. Can you count them? It's a rhetorical question, of course not. And God said, so shall your descendants, literally seed, be. So it's interesting that if we think about it, in this verse, he takes Avram outside, as God takes Avram outside and asks Avram uh, rhetorically to count the stars. Uh, 
there's so many of them, you can't, they can't be counted. And now looking back at the beginning of the chapter, when God said to Avram, Avram God said to Avram, your sachar is very many, it's harbei. Avram thought God was talking about material wealth, wealth that can't be counted. But no, it turns out that was not God's intention from the very beginning. The multitude is not a multitude of, 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 of objects, of material. It's a multitude of people. So now we understand from, and this is God, as if God, Avram's interrupting what God is saying. That was God's intention from the very beginning. That, so this is the, the promise made to Avram. And it's interesting that we have this expression in the fifth verse, God takes Avram hachutza, takes him outside. Rashi quotes the Medrash, which could actually be the plausible meaning of the text or a meaning of the text. Took him outside means that Avram has to see things from a different perspective. That's by hachutza, to be able to see things from a different perspective. The Medrash says, Avram saying to God, how can I have a child? That's not possible. The astrologers, science, what you want to call it, science of the time says, can't happen. And God says to Avram, can't happen from their perspective. From a different perspective, it can happen. In the words of the Medrash, Avram, the name Avram, your name at present, has no children. But Avraham, what you will become later, that's a different story. So it's actually very interesting that God takes Avram outside. One might say in terms of prayer, um, in terms of prayer, that's one of the, uh, perhaps the challenge of prayer is to see things from a different perspective. That's the challenge and the opportunity of prayer is to be, see things from another perspective maybe God's perspective. In any event, this is what we have. We have a reiteration of a promise. We had a promise earlier when God first took Avram, commanded Avram in chapter 12, I will give the land to the, this land to your descendants, unnamed descendants. And here it's again repeated in chapter 15, but the context, as we'll see, is a covenantal context. It's interesting, by the way, that as we know through our studies that verses are picked up by other texts and there's a whole interconnectedness of texts, sometimes a whole string of them and we interpret one in light of the other. So this verse is very interesting. God took Avram outside and says, look at the stars, can you count them? You can't count them. And later on in this book, in the book of Breshit, uh, we have someone else who goes hachutza. Um, actually, there are two people in this book, that, apart from Avram, who go outside. But the one I'm thinking about at the moment is uh, the story of Yosef. The story of Yosef and Mrs. Potiphar. Um, that's chapter 39. So let me just read to you what it says in chapter 39. That's the incident of Yosef and Mrs. Potiphar. 
That's uh, next week's Torah reading, Parshat Mikates. And um, there it says that this uh, is Potiphar is propositioning Yosef, and uh, she grabs his coat. But it is chapter 39, verse number 12. So she grabs his coat and Joseph runs out, leaving the coat in her hands. And Achutza over there actually, one might call that the test of Joseph. He runs outside, he leaves a piece of himself inside. He leaves the coat inside, he's leaving the house. That's the place of his employment. That's the place of his prosperity. He leaves all that behind, can't get involved with Mrs. Potiphar. And that begins a chain of events. Initially, it ends up in jail, could easily have gotten him killed. But from there, he proceeds to get a different set of clothing. And he works for Paro. And in, the, uh, in his employment in working for Paro, he's able to, um, number one, bring prosperity to the land of Egypt. He's also able to bring prosperity to Joseph. And that's part of the story, of course, of the brothers coming down to get food. And there it says that Joseph gathered a lot of food. He would gather so much food, it says, you couldn't count it, for there was no number. And that's actually very interesting to always think about how later texts use the earlier text. In other words, part of it is the chutzah suggests something very uh, wonderful about Joseph his ability to walk out of the present situation. He's seeing things from a different perspective. He's not seeing it the situation the way Mrs. Potiphar sees it. Mrs. Potiphar sees it, my husband's not around. You're the big shot in the house now. Let's get together. And Joseph sees it as, this is the man that helped me. This is the man that trusted me. This is the man that gave me opportunities, etc. Different perspective. When he works for Paro, it's very interesting because the Torah employs the same language as if to say, what has become of our Joseph? The very phrase used covenantally in chapter 15, which talks about possession of land and talks about covenant. And now Joseph spends all his time making Paro rich. That's, so it's interesting to see how these texts are employed by other texts and how they add all kinds of shades and levels of meaning as well. But over here, this is the promise to Avraham to see things differently. And specifically, it's interesting to look up towards the heavens. Now, to look up to the heavens, that recalls for us a verse in chapter 14. Actually, a, a phrase that appears twice in chapter 14. When Avram is greeted by Melchizedek, this Kohen, who's a king, who speaks, who's the priest of the high God, and he says to um, Avraham in chapter 14, Baruch Avram li'el o'yon, konei shamayim va'aretz. And when Avram swears uh, as well, talks about konei shamayim va'aretz, the creator of heaven and earth. So here, Avram is invited in chapter 15 to look at the heavens. And if we read further, the next verse, just to read it now, Bashem, 
Avram Hamin Bashem, let's say, had faith. This translation is had trusted. I'll get to back to the idea of Hamin. By Yachshevel the translator says that God considered it, reckoned it to the merit of Abraham, Tzedaka. Of course, we hear Malki Tzedek in that. And then God speaks, by Yom Love, Ani Hashem Asher Otseiticha Mi'ur Kasdim, Lotet Lecha Ta'aretz Azot Gemishtah. I am the God who took you out of Ur Kasdim to give you this land as a possession. So two verses earlier, he was told to look at the heavens. And in this verse, God speaks of this land. I'm the God who took you out to give you this land. So there's Shamayim, and there's Aretz Hazot, this particular land. And that actually is reflective of one of the main themes, I think, that emerges from chapter 14, namely, that's a possession of this particular land is a fulfillment of God's creation in general of Shemayim Va'aretz. God is creator of Shemayim Va'aretz is the first verse of the Torah. It's also verse number four of chapter two, which begins the second creation narrative. And, over here, and those two are not contradictory, I argue, but more complementary. The second is a further fulfillment of the first. So over here, we have the same idea. Avraham, you have symbolically possessed the land of Canaan. In doing so, you fulfill my purpose in creation. Now I invite you both to look at the Shamayim, but also I'm going to remind you and reiterate about this particular land to which I have directed you. So the Shamayim Va'aretz of chapter 15 then plays off very nicely, connects very well and very deeply actually to the theme of chapter 14. That is the main, in my view, theme of chapter 14, the symbolic possession of the land that now leads to a concrete covenant to be made with Avram's descendants. Now, before I pause for a moment to take comments and questions, I want to say something else about verse number seven that we just read. But God says, Two things. First of all, I think anybody who reads this verse is reminded of two other verses. One of which, of course, is the first verse of the Ten Commandments. Etc. In this verse, I am the God who took you out of, in this case, not Egypt, but Kastim, recalls that verse and also recalls the God's uh, speaking to Moshe in the beginning of Sefer Shemot, I am the, I am the God, right, uh, in terms of the burning bush. Um, God introduces God to Moshe. In the Moshe episode, in the snare, the God of your ancestors, of your forefathers. In the episode of the Ten Commandments, God speaks to the people. I'm the one that took you out of Egypt. That's the basis of our relationship, your experience. With the snare, the basis of the relationship is your our mutual connection to, 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 to your past, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So over here, the very expression, I'm the God who took you out of Ur Kasdim in order to give you right something, me, highlights the verse. When you read it in the context of the other two verses, it highlights it as a very interesting introduction to something 
highly significant to the covenant. Ten Commandments are a covenant, Uchot Habrit, and the land is to be given covenantally. It will say in this chapter, at the end of chapter 15, on that day, God made a covenant, the end of chapter 15. Well, there's something interesting about this verse, which is, if you think about it, I am the God who took you out of Orkastim to give you this land, that offhand, that's not true. Because the Torah did not say that God took Avram out of Ur-Kastim to give him the land. The Torah said quite the opposite. The Torah said that Terach left Ur-Kastim with the intention of going to the land of Canaan and that he stopped in Haran and that he died in Haran. And then God said to Avram, Lechucha. And presumably, God said to Avram, Lechucha, not in Ur-Kastim, which they left a long time ago, and he didn't, he didn't initiate the move from Ur-Kastim. Sounds like Terach did it on his own, but it certainly wasn't Avraham. And God spoke to Avraham, presumably, in the place where Avraham is, which is Haran. So what does it mean over here? I am the God who took you out of Ur-Kastim to give you this land. That's the question. What does that mean? Did he go back to Ur-Kastim? doesn't say so. So what does it mean? I, I'm the God who took you out of Ur-Kastim. Now, the fact that there's a contradiction between this verse and the verse earlier, we have plenty of contradictions. One could argue, I wouldn't put it out of, say it's not, it's not possible, that this verse is a different perspective or reflects a different story. That's not impossible to say in my view, but I don't think we have to actually go there. I think the point is something else over here. It's not that God said to Avram, leave or Kastim, of course not. But I think what the Torah is getting at over here is that there is a trajectory. And the significance of which I will, uh, I'll, I'll make a suggestion about it's the significance in this particular context. You left or Kastim, your father left or Kastim, Terach left or Kastim, maybe he thought he was doing it on his own. But let me tell you something, Avram. From the very beginning, this was part of my design. My design was from the very, very beginning that looking back at what happened in your life, even at the time it happened, you didn't hear my voice. When you look back at your life and you begin to see patterns in your life, you will see that, that from the very outset, that was the intention. It was actually Terah's intention. The Torah says that explicitly, that Terah had intended to go to the land of Canaan and for some reason stopped and dies in Haran. And now God says to Abraham, let me tell you something. This is not a new thing, this idea of a covenant. This was my intention from the very beginning, from the moment that you left or custom. One might say, in the light of this verse, we sort of can rethink the exit from, 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 from or custom on the part of Terach and Abraham and the family, then in some sense, maybe unconsciously, this was the original plan. And the reason I emphasize this over here is not so much for this verse, but for a different set of verses that we'll get to in a few minutes, which is the substance of this, of this covenant. The Torah will define this arrangement in chapter 15, this promise in chapter 15 in, in, in covenantal terms. That's a very, very important point. And I wanted to say something about 
the nature of the of, of the terms of, of this covenant. But before we get to that, I'll stop here for a moment. And if there are any comments or questions, Rabbi, try to entertain them. Yes. Um, can that you, even though it's written in the singular, can it be more? I, I see it as the collective you. I took you, your whole family, which gives more credence to the idea that Tarek is not this terrible person as he's portrayed in the Midrash. But I, I took you, the collective you, the whole family, because that's the only way it kind of makes sense. Right, there's no, there's no doubt that in reading the Chumash, and this is the point we made in the first couple of classes, that the sense you get in, I think the, the, the best reading of the Torah, before you get to the Midrashim and Rashi and all the other commentaries, and the rabbinic tradition, which downplays Terach to play up Abraham. But when you read the story, it's clear that Terach is the major player and he's right. the one who initiates it. And that's why I claim, that's why it says Ela Todo Terach. Right. It doesn't say Ela Todo Abraham. It never says Ela Todo Abraham because the story yeah. begins with Terach, really. Um, it is true that the rabbinic tradition um, downplays Terach, reads some negativity into Terach in terms of reading the Gidon story of the idols into the Abraham story. And it's also true that Terach may have begun the mission but it's Abraham who takes the, those very critical steps. Terach, for whatever reason, stops short of the mark. He doesn't make it all the way back. It's Abraham that continues to travel to pick up where his father left off. He travels in the same direction as his father. So yes, there is a sense over here in this verse, however we can formulate it precisely, you call it the, the, the kind of collective you, that you, that you, your family or whatever, this journey you've been on, let me explain to you the journey that you've been on. I think we probably all have had that in our lives at some point or other. We find ourselves in a certain place that we ask ourselves, how do we get here? And it turns out we got here in some rather circuitous manner. Always we thought it was circuitous, but then looking at it from a different perspective, sort of a bunch of things came together to end us up in, in, in wherever we may find ourselves for better or, or, or for worse. But so this is the point over here. This is what God is saying is, this is your mission. This is from the very beginning, this has always been your mission. It's not something new. From the moment we met, this was your mission. It, it, the journey is very circuitous. It has the narrative has ups and downs, but this was always the intention. But this is it. So now I'll come back to the question of faith later on. Anybody else for comments or questions? I just wanted to know but it's interesting that God uses Malkitzedek's uh, language. When yes, he says, yes. Anochi magen lach, he actually recites, like, uh, conf confirms the language of Migen Tzarecha Beyadecha of Malkitzedek. Yes, I would say there are probably a dozen references in chapter 15 to chapter 12. I mentioned Shemayim Ba'aretz, Magen Migen, Siddhartha is another one. Right. Yeah, and the others as well, we'll see, there are more of them. But that makes sense in light of the fact that 15 is, is playing off 14. Once you, once you have symbolically possessed the land, okay, now let's, now let's talk about the future, when you're actually going to possess the land. Because Avram is setting up, this is symbolic, he doesn't really possess the land. This is symbolic. So later on, someone, your descendants, will actually possess the land. I'll come back to this theme, hopefully, as we proceed, not this week, not next week, but in the spring, we continue. I mean, I call the end of January the springs, but it doesn't matter. The point is the second semester, whatever, we'll continue with this theme of Avram being a symbolic possessor, but others coming in and actually possessing it 
very, very interesting, I, I think, interesting uh, ideas that are to be found there, but we'll get there. Uh, I okay. had another thought about um, yes. the Terach versus Abraham, that if, if um, as you were saying, that this implies that the plan that God um, planned all along, you know, what was going to happen with leaving Ur-Kazim, um, even if Terach initiated it, it's just like Ishmael was not chosen and Esau was not chosen. Even if Terach initiated, God knew that Terach was not the right person to, to have the covenant to go to Canaan. So he manipulated, kept Terach's stopping. Right, I mean, don't, don't have to even have to go so far as manipulation because, I mean, Terach does stop short. Well, I don't know if manipulate, but he was the marion, you know, like a marionette. He was, if God was pulling the stream, then Terra couldn't continue to knob. Right, you could read, you could say that God actually inspired, I'm the one who inspired Terra to leave in the first place. It wasn't his own initiative. I mean, the Torah doesn't suggest that earlier. And I was the one to stop him. Could be, you could read that in, but I'm saying, I'm, I'm not sure you have to go that far. Well, also, uh, Rabbi Silver, it seems to me that that uh, Micah, that uh, you know, a lot of Terach's family end up uh, being involved here. So it's not uh, you know, not just Avraham. You know, that's true. But on the other hand, that is true. But actually, in a certain sense, it is Avraham because if you think about, he has two brothers, one of whom dies, and Apnei Terach Aviv, Lot being the son of that deceased brother. But the other brother, Nahar, stays in, he, he, he stays in Iran. He stays the women. In Iran. The women. So Avram's the one who goes forward. The other two don't go forward. But the women, the women. The women, but the women in the story go with the husbands, basically. I mean, that's the, not that they don't, not that they don't have a mind of their own, but the narrative of Genesis is solely patriarchal. Avram takes Sarah. She goes with him and she's important, but, uh, the focus in terms of the, even in terms of the, the genealogies of all the boys, there are no girls there, except when they're the wife of X or whatever. There are exceptions. So I wouldn't say that Avram has not been singled out. I think he is singled out, but uh, yeah, but it is certainly initially when you read it, it's Terach who's the main player, obviously. But here we have a different perspective, whether it's I forced him to do it, I told him to do it, or whether it was, in, or whether he's carrying out my will, however you wish to formulate it, but what God is saying, this was always the plan from the beginning. Before you left, you didn't realize it, but you're leaving from Ur Kastim, you're already on the path. So looking back, so reinterpreting our past, which we'll get to this in a couple of months. Rabbi Silver. Yes. Uh, wouldn't, it's Wendy speaking. Yeah. Um, the fact that the family kept intermarrying into Terach's ancestry uh, give great credence that two of the wives, I think Michael was, was getting at that point, that's what hit me then, um, that two of the wives, he was, the, the, the children deliberately were sent or somebody was sent to get wives from there. That is true. From Levan. I totally agree. That's, that is true. That that Avraham it's, is... It's, it's almost as though Avraham really is not, it's the family of Terach so that both spouse and, and Sarah was also part of that family. 
Sarah's part of the family, Rifka is part of the family, Lowen's part of the family. Yes. He goes, he goes to his, he, he's going to yes. find so a all the, If all of the wives serve, reinforce the Tarak connection. And don't go to anybody else. To yes, but, but, the tr but that's true. However, we have to remember that, let's say, for example, in the story of Rivka, mm -hmm. the focus in the Rivka story, despite the fact that the servant presents it differently, is Avram's main focus in the Rivka story is not to let's find someone from my family. In fact, he doesn't even mention the family when he gives the instructions. Mm -hmm. what's, what's important to him is not so much someone from the family, but somebody that's willing to leave the family. That's his focus. The person who leaves the family the way I left them behind is the right one. So yes, okay. the, the right person will come from the family, but the right person is the one who actually leaves the family, abandons the family. That's the focus in the Rifka story, much more than her being part of the family. But wouldn't Java never mention left way. his family back in yeah. her? Rivka's his family. What do you mean? Rivka's... No, no, no. Rivka's... himself, when he left Ur, was leaving his family behind. He brought his children, that's... but he didn't bring his father oh, or his that's... brother. Yeah, that's possible. Right? That is possible. No, I agree with you. I agree that in the yeah. Chumash initially, Terech is, is presented very positively. I yeah. totally agree with that. Right. I'm just saying the way it plays out in the story in terms of Avram, he is consolidating or creating his own, his own family, his own covenantal family. He has a connection to his past, that's for sure. But the connection is not the same. I wouldn't say it's kind of equal partners and it's a connection that over time becomes attenuated as we'll see if we hopefully proceed through safe for Breshi. Okay, let's, let's, pick, let's continue now with verse number eight. I had we, one idea. Yes. It's Debbie Sundheim. Um, yeah. I thought it was interesting when you brought up Yosef. Here it's Hashem pointing out, you know, that there is my hand behind it. You need to see it from a different perspective. And Yosef at the end points out that it's not me who's doing it, but it's God who's pulling the strings behind it. That sure. in both cases that you have to see it from not a man's you know, human-centered perspective of the actions that are happening, but it's really God, you know, right, right, and Yosef actually says that more than once. He says it right. in two places, but at the end of his life, he says it, so that's a very good point. Now, whether Yosef behaves that way all along is a bit of a question, but, but certainly at the end of the day, his perception is, as you say, is exactly this point, that God has been pulling the strings all along, God has a plan, if we get there, well, there's a lot to say about that important thought, but I'll leave it net for now, but it's, a good, it's an important point. Rabbi, can I make just a quick observation? Just yep. You could see why there was so much trouble having kids uh, from Sarah to Rivka to Leah, because they're marrying in the same family. The bloodline is too close. <laughs> right, but medical perspective. Right? Uh, okay, so let us, let's continue now with verse number eight. So Avram says to God once again, Again, that same that same name for God, it's very rare. Now the question is, what does it mean? So there is a, one approach is that he actually has a doubt. In other words, it's a very nice, I mean, because it's, his promises are very beautiful. How can I be certain that it's really going to happen? There is an approach that sees Avram as having some doubts about this 
promise, which is a fantastic promise, A, they'll have a child, and B, that someday he's be so many of them, and they'll possess this land. So one can read into it a question, some degree of skepticism into the verse, verse number eight. My own view is that that's not the case, actually. He may have some doubt, but I don't think it is so much about doubt because he didn't say, how do I know? He said, strikes me as something different. Not how could I know, but through what shall I know? And I would say this way, that you've made up all these fantastic promises to me, which the Torah will call a covenant in a few verses. And now the question is, covenants in the Bible, in general, are two-sided arrangements. You've made this unbelievable promise to me. What has to happen in order to secure the promise? I know what I did. I fought, I fought to save my my nephew, I, uh, fought, I, I protected the weak against the strong. And Malkit Zedek said, I did a good thing. I carried out your will. I symbolically possessed the land. Now you're talking about actually possessing the land. Through what shall I know? Now here I think it means more what has to take place. What is, what is the price? What is the, what is the cost? What is the commitment from, from, from our side? That's the question. Because covenant is two-sided. There is no such thing as a one-sided covenant. It doesn't exist. Don't even think about it. Unilateral covenant, forget that term. Covenants are always two-sided, always commitments on either side. Whether if your violation of the covenant destroys it, that's a separate question. It could be that the covenant obtains, even if violated, is a temporary punishment or suspension, but it's reconstituted, that's possible but that you have a, a, a covenant with no commitment on the other side, that is not possible. Because that's a co contradiction of what covenant means. It's a bridge, it's a two-sided covenant. That's the question. What, what does it cost? What is the price of the covenant? And now we have the response, which is critical. So let's begin it now. Maybe we'll finish. Tarva goes out. So Avram is told to bring a set of animals. And Mishuleshet, the translation here says a three-year-old heifer, could be, it's possible. And Egla Mishuleshet, and Ez Mishuleshet, Ayo Mishulash. So there were three animals. And the three, each of the three animals, let's say is Mishuleshet, let's call it three years old. And in addition to the three animals that are three years old, to take two birds, a turtle dove and a young bird, totally goes out, two birds. You take these animals. And Avram does. Avram took the animals. He cut them in two. And he puts the two halves facing each other. But the bird, here the bird means the birds the two birds, which he calls the bird, because he's not cutting them in half, the two like one, but he doesn't cut them, he doesn't cut the birds, because he can place each bird facing the other bird, doesn't cut them up. But he, um, the animals he cuts in pieces. We'll have to understand over here, 
a very basic point about the chapter is what is the relationship between the animals that he takes and what's about to be spoken, this covenant? What, what's the connection between the animals and the covenant? And now we have a very strange verse. Is Avram. An ayat is a, some kind of bird of prey. So the, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses. Vayashev Otam Avram, and Avram drove away the, the birds of prey. The question, of course, is in reading this, is this something that happened in the course? He's setting up a covenant. He has these animals cut in half. And all of a sudden, the birds of prey come down and they're going to mess up his covenant. They're going to eat up the birds, of, they'll eat up the carcasses. There won't be any carcasses through which the fire can walk through. Is that what this is about? Or are the birds of prey in the story part and parcel of, this, of, the, of the covenantal setting? I assume that the latter is true, that the birds of prey themselves have a significance for the story. And the significance, I believe, is the following. Uh, well, let's just read a few more verses. I'll come back to this in one minute. The sun was about to set. And a deep sleep, Tardema, fell upon Avram. And a dark, deep dread. Chashecha is darkness. Amos fear. A fear and a deep darkness fell upon him. And now God begins to speak. Avram had asked the question, through what shall I know? So God, in verse number 13, there's a response to the question of and the answer is you will certainly know. What will you know? In terms of the question, what is the price? What is the cost? What is the commitment? The commitment is threefold. Know that your descendants will be strangers, care. Marginalized people, strangers, in a land not theirs. And second of all, avadu, they will be enslaved. And third of all, inuota, they will be oppressed, inui, oppression, for 400 years. That's the price. So the price actually, the price is threefold, care, avdut, and inui, and presumably represented by the three animals, which are the egel, the ayo, and the ayes, all of which are mishuleshet. And so the three animals cut in pieces then represent the three, uh, the three kinds of suffering, and the three kinds of suffering, which we discover shortly, here it says 400 years, but a couple of verses later, it talks about the fourth generation returning to the land. If we go down to verse number, was it 16 or 17? Verse 16, if you scroll down to verse 16, you will see that in verse 16, it says, You will die in ripe old age, in verse 15, be buried in ripe old age. The fourth generation shall return to the land for the sin of the Amori is not complete till then. So if the fourth generation returns to the land 
and they're represented presumably by the birds. The birds are not cut up. Birds fly back. Birds are not harmed. The birds are not cut. So the three animals, the egua, the A's, and the ayo, which are cut in pieces, they represent the generations of suffering, three generations, with the triple suffering of Gewut, Abdut, and Inui. And those are represented by the three animals, which are Meshuleshet. And here we go back to the verse that the, 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 the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses by Yashev Otam Avram, and Avram chased them away. That suggests something else. That suggests to us that these three generations of suffering, Gewut, Abdut, and Inui, that not only will they suffer, but they could, they're very close to being annihilated completely. And if not for Avram, they might have been. And we recall, for example, in this context, the verses in the beginning of the book of Shemot, which describes actually the suffering of Israel and Egypt in terms of Gerut, Abdut, and Inui, not surprisingly. And then it says that the people cried out in, in their suffering to God, and God remembered God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So with the, the redemption from Egypt, actually, in Sefer Shemot, in end of chapter 2, is the suggestion in the Chumash is that this took place because God remembers Avram. In other words, that without Avram's merit, without the covenant with Avram and Avram's merit, maybe we would not have made it out of Egypt. Maybe we would have been utterly destroyed. But over here, there's a hint at the fact that no, because of the merit of Avram, even though the ayat comes down upon the Bikarim, because remember that Pharaoh in Egypt and Egypt is one of the fulfillments of this covenant. And we'll get to that perhaps next week. But remember that in Egypt, it wasn't only that the Egyptians enslaved the, 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 uh, the Hebrews, but the Torah says that Paro commanded the Egyptians to throw all the boys into the uh, Nile River to kill them. It wasn't just Gerut, Abdet, and Inui. We might have been completely destroyed. And somehow we, we, we were saved from that. So here you have Vayerita Ayat Hapkarim, that it's not just Gewut Abdat and Inuit. It could be even worse, if not for the merit of, of Abraham, Vayashevotam Avram. And here we have another reference to chapter 14. Because Avram goes out to save Lot, and to, he does incidentally save many others. Vayashev et Kohar he restored all the possessions. And he was Meshiv. He, he restored as well the people. He restores the people, he restores the possessions. Avram does. And over here you have one another play on Avram. Avram chased them away. Avram enables the animals to not survive, they're dead, but to be but to be present there for the covenant. So that's another link to chapter 14. In short, the animals that we told to take are representative of the very text of the covenant, the idea of the covenant, the price that you pay, which is Gerut, Abdut, and Inu. And now there's something else that's very important about this covenant. Very, very important about the covenant. It's not just that the terms of the covenant are very severe being a stranger, being a slave, being oppressed, these are very powerful terms. But there's something else about the covenant which is underscored by the animals. 
the Torah makes it clear. The three animals, the egua, the A's, and the ayo, are, are actually cut up in pieces, almost destroyed. But the birds are not. The birds are not cut. Now, what is the significance of the fact that the birds are not cut? Well, presumably the significance is when it says a couple of verses later, the fourth generation shall return to the land. But it means if we take this, this parallel seriously, it means the fourth generation is not subject to Geirut, Avdut, and Inui. Only the three generations are oppressed in this way. Strangers, marginalized, oppressed, enslaved, etc. But those that return to the land in the formulation of the covenant, they were never Geirim. They were never strangers. They were never oppressed. They were never enslaved. But if you think about it this way, from the standpoint, let us presume that those who enter into the covenant understand the covenant. It turns out if I understand the covenant, let's say I'm third generation. If I'm third generation and I know the covenant, then I know one thing. I will spend my life suffering. I will be a stranger. I will be a slave. I will be oppressed. And I will never see the promised land. Because in the covenant, if the fourth generation shall return to the land, those that don't suffer possess the land. Those that suffer never possess the land. It means you live your life knowing you will never see in your lifetime, or at least experience, maybe you'll see it, but you will never experience the blessings that the covenant sets up. And we have to ask ourselves the question, who would want to enter into such a covenant? It's a very good question. And uh, in the book of Breshit, the main character in the book of Breshit, I mean, Avram is up there. And I would have to argue that the main character of Genesis is Jacob. Jacob is Israel. He's the main character. And Jacob actually describes his life exactly that way. When he ends up in the land of Egypt, a place he was, doesn't want to go to. And he knows what awaits the next generation. I will demonstrate that at some other point. And he stands in front of Paro, and Paro says, you look very old, how old are you? And Jacob answered him, not as old as you think. Not as old as my father or grandfather. My life has been very shorter, and my life has been terrible. Ma'ad v'ra'im hayu my life has been terrible. You know, it's funny, you know, that um, I was thinking about this, that sometimes you talk to a stranger and you tell the stranger all kinds of things you would never tell anybody else. It used to happen to me when I used to do a lot of flying and people would, for whatever reason, sat next to me and they would tell me their life story. Yes, all kinds of advice. I guess they figured this guy sitting with a yarmulke on his head as far away from them as anything possible. And who knows? Maybe he has a good piece of advice or whatever. So Parawi tells the truth, a different perspective on his life, not about the covenant. I look old, you know what kind of life I've had? Terrible, that's what he says. Now it's not terrible from his perspective because he believes in the covenant as we will demonstrate. He understands the covenant. He knows exactly what he's getting into in Mitzrayim for reasons I will explain another time. But my point about the covenant here, and this is a very important point, is that 
the terms of it are very severe and more severe than you think initially, given the fact that those that suffer will never possess the land. And therefore, it puts, I think, in a different light, somebody who rejects the covenant. A person could easily reject the covenant and say, listen, it's a lovely thing for somebody else. I want to live a life. I live once. I want to live a life. I don't want to suffer. That's what Esau says, essentially. That's what Yishmael says, essentially. And that's probably what 99% of humanity would say, essentially. Who, who, who Very nice about the future, whatever that may hold. But we're living now. So the Gerut, the Abdet, the Inui, all that suffering, that's for somebody, that's not for me. So it's totally understandable, completely understandable. But these are the terms of the covenant in the book of Genesis. I almost laugh when someone says about this covenant being a unilateral covenant, it's a one-sided covenant. There's no more two-sided covenant that ever existed than this one. It's so two-sided. You might say it's even imbalanced because what a price to pay. Those are the terms. And the Torah actually, in case you miss it, the Torah emphasizes this by saying, by the sun was setting, there was alata, which is a very strange word, appears virtually no other place. And in the previous verse, a deep and dark dread fell upon Avram. A deep and dark dread, a great fear, because Avram understands actually, that was his question. This promise of fulfilling your purpose in all creation it couldn't be a higher goal. But Malki Tzedek had said, blessed is Avram to God. You do God's work. Baruch Avram So there's no greater good. And now you promised this land, this, this, this fulfillment of your creation to my descendants. There must be some terrific price to pay for that. What is it? And that's the fear and the dread and the deep darkness. We'll get to Alata later, but it's all these terms make it clear, if it wasn't clear before, that this is a story of immense significance. This is a covenant of immense significance, and it is a very big price that one pays. And Avram accepts it, essentially. And the question is how this plays out. It doesn't say that all of Avram's descendants will enter into the covenant. The book of Breshit is about choosing. Some, have, some will choose to enter into the covenant and some will choose not to enter into the covenant. And we don't necessarily have to blame those that don't enter into the covenant, or at least we understand them. But the hero is the one who accepts the burden as the Torah's hero, who accepts the burden of the covenant, to sets up the future. So this will be, of course, Jacob. And this is the line of Avram to Yitzchak, Yitzchak to Yaakov. There will be a choice at every turn. This is the nature of the covenant. So the, just to repeat what we have so far, the animals, really the key here, the, the, key, the key to understanding it is the, these animals. The three that are cut, representing the threefold suffering and the three generations. And the fourth, the birds who never suffered and will fly to freedom. Let me just take a couple more minutes now and then I'll stop for comments and questions. Now God's still doing all the talking. In the next verse, so let's reflect on this verse for a moment. God says, 
the nation which enslaves them, done, I will judge or punish. And afterwards, they will leave, they'll go free with great rechush. Both, of course, the term done and the term rechush appeared in the previous chapter. Rechush appeared, I believe, seven times. And what does Abraham run to secure the land? He goes done. to done. done. He goes to done. So God says, the nation that enslaves them, I will judge. Even though the medievals are, are, are interested in this idea that why should you judge the people that enslave them, God, if you yourself predicted that they're going to be enslaved? Okay, that takes us to the question of foreknowledge and free will and choice and all this business. That's not our problem right here, but that's what God says. Interesting, though, is something else. That even though God spoke of threefold suffering, care, evid, inui, but in this verse, in verse 14, the text singles out of Yavodu. The text singles out, focuses on the slavery more than the other two. And then they will leave It's interesting that it, we know from the Seder that at the Seder we, we, we read these verses and we stop at this verse. We don't continue reading the text of the covenant at the Seder beyond when you read here in chapter 15 of Breshit, and we'll have to continue next week with this, but it's obvious that this is not the goal. The goal is not to leave Berchush That is a goal, but it's not the goal. The goal is to return to the land. What the Torah is saying over here is the three generations that suffer, the most that can be said about them is that they believe the place of suffering, they will have material wealth. And it's more than just material wealth because if you leave you're not an Evid. The Evid doesn't have So the is significant. The material goods are important in the sense they reflect the fact that we're no longer beholding to somebody else. But that's as much you can say about that generation. You will die in ripe old age. The fourth generation shall return to the land. So the covenant is about the land. But only the fourth generation returns to the land. But as far as the third generation goes, they will leave Berchush Kadol. So they'll have Berchush. But the Berchush, of course, is not the end. In fact, Avram understood this in the previous chapter. The king of Sodom said, give me the people, and you can have the Berchush. I don't, I don't want your rechush, not even sroch, not even the smallest piece of rechush. I don't want that. Avram understand this chapter. What are you going to give me? I need, I, need, I, need, I need a person. I need a successor. I need an heir. So Avram understands it. In terms of the covenant, there are two stages. The most that can be said for stage one is, the Torah is predicting what's going to happen in the future. Now, the last point I want to make for today is, that the Torah doesn't exactly say when this covenant is going to be fulfilled. We all know that one of the fulfillments of the covenant is the story in the second book of the Torah, which is the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. We know that because when you read the story, you find all kinds of literary links to, 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 to the covenant. All, the whole story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim 
is tied into the language of the covenant. And that, of course, is what lies behind the core Jewish ritual we call the Seder. The Seder is all about this. The Seder is, makes the claim that the exodus from Egypt is a covenantal fulfillment of a prior promise. That's the core of the Seder. And it's certainly the case. That's not to say, however, that there's not a prior fulfillment in the book of Breshit, because there is. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. But here we have the terms of this covenant. In other words, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fearful covenant. It requires unbelievable commitment. It's two stages, three generations and a fourth generation. The fourth generation shall return to the land. The three generations suffer the threefold suffering. They will leave. Those that enslave them will be judged. They'll leave with material goods. They'll have, once I say, physical freedom, but they won't actually connect to the land. That takes an additional generation. There's a lot more to say about this. Let me stop at this point and take comments or questions. And the next week we will hopefully finish the covenant. You know, whatever, we'll continue with it and we will say more, uh, hopefully continue as well. And we take a break and we'll resume the classes after the break. Anybody has a comment or question, please speak up. Yes, yes. So Moshe Rabbeinu then was fighting an uphill battle asking Hashem to come into Eretz Israel. So he was never entitled to in the first place, it sounds like. That's right. There's no doubt that the, the reader of the Chumash understands from the very beginning of Sefer Shemot that this generation that Moshe takes out of Egypt is not going to make it. It's, it's obvious because that generation is actually the third generation. When you count the generations, it's generation three. In fact, we'll see next week, the Torah spells it out for us explicitly. It's amazing how people miss this. I mean, the great ones missed it. But when you see it, it's obvious. The Torah actually tells you that Moshe is third generation. So the reader knows more than Moshe. The reader knows that the people that Moshe is speaking to are not really the people that will possess the land. One might say something else just from an educational standpoint, you know, that... <clears throat> The question is always when you're speaking to a person or to a group of people, who are you really speaking to? And the answer is you speak to everybody. But very often the message is directed more towards one group than another. So that, for example, in Mitzrayim, the people that matter to Moshe, the people that Moshe is really talking to in Mitzrayim are not the people he takes out of Egypt because those people we know are going nowhere. It's clear. But the people he's actually talking to are the children. Think about the Paschal sacrifice, right? The blood is on the doorpost, not so much to spare the house. It is to spare the house, but it's much more to spare the, the, the house's children of the next generation, because the, the next generation is the generation that's gonna possess the land. The reader knows this from the very beginning of Exodus, first two, three verses, you count out the generations, it's clear. Torah couldn't be more clear about it. So even though Moshe is speaking to his generation, but the core message actually, whether Moshe knows this or not, I'm not sure he knows it, but whether he knows it or not, doesn't matter, the Chumash knows it, that the real message has to be heard by the next generation, because at the end of the day, that generation uh, is the one that's gonna possess the land, the little children, or the ones born in the desert that were never in Egypt in the first place. The people that possess the land are the ones who essentially were not in Egypt. The people that were in Egypt are not going to possess the land, as we just read. They're, those are the two birds that are not cut. And we'll see this next week. 
the Torah is virtually explicit in the Chumash that this is the case, but we'll see it next week. Anybody else? I just wanted to say, Rabbi Siva, that Vayatel Hashem Elokim Tardemal Adam Vayishan. So Adam did lose his consciousness, but Adam, but not Abraham. So it's it's interesting that as you say, Brit is mutual. So by not losing his consciousness, he wasn't sleeping really, because it doesn't say Tardema Vayishan. It means that he's a partner to this. Um, right, this. I would say that. I would also say, so I thought you were going to take it in a different direction, that the same way Adam is the, the beginning of civilization, we might say the beginning of, because that's where he, that's where the Isha is created from the Ish, and that's how humanity is going to move forward. It's like kind of kind of new beginning. He, he's created, but then he, okay. one might say he's sort of recreated through this, through the creation of, of Chava, he's also recreated. He becomes an Ish only at the moment she becomes Isha. So there's a kind of recreation. And I think over here, you have a similar idea that Abraham, in a sense, is being recreated covenantally because at this point, we, the story takes a different turn. At this point, human history becomes covenantal history, which is was very different. So the parallel between the two, you, 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 you drew our attention to the difference between the two, which is interesting. There's also the commonality of the two. It's, each of them is a, is a kind of new beginning, a new, a, new, a new way to see human history and to see uh, human existence actually as, as, as covenantal. This is a, a new creation. It's basically what the Medrash is saying to walk outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're seeing it from the perspective of Avram, says the Medrash. But, but the human history is there. It's not Avram to see. The story of history is not the story of, of, of Abram. It's the story of Abraham. There's a new person that's being created at this moment. And this new person has a new story to tell. So in that sense, I would say the two stories are actually parallel. Uh, you draw attention to differences. And, and all these commonalities, there's the commonality and the distinction that are both important. Yes. Why do you think there are two birds? To place one on each side to walk through. That's why. Uh-huh. The fire that's going to walk through represents God's presence. We'll talk about the fire next week as well. All these so, interesting. So yes. you're, reading, you're reading Solea in the Jacob story in the same way as reference as referencing also the the creation of the first couple. Yes, of course. Now okay. the question is, it's certainly a reference. The question is, who's so right? Because it's not just that. There's other things there as well that it's creation things, but it's also the dust. Created from the dust. It, it, it's mm-hmm. a new creation. Yep. The question is, yes. The question is, it's certainly related without question. The question is always, what do we make of it? That's when the, in other words, the two issues in this seeing the, seeing the literary links is one thing. Okay. And then the question, and what's interesting is what do we what do we make of these of these of these? Oh of my these gosh, things? I just I just realized that it's actually Jungian, because after that he loses his spouse. So it's actually it's actually Solea is he himself contains the male and the female. Wow. Okay. It is right. There certainly is right. There's certainly something happening. That's what I said. There's certainly something which is, however we understand it, it is certainly connected to that creation story. That is, a, and that's that is the beginning of that's Jacob becoming Israel. That is certainly a new creation. 
which is both generation. What to make of it? That, so let's leave that for now. Maybe someday we'll get there. What to make of the parallel or of the reference is something very important. Okay, I'll stop at this point. And um, if you have any other questions, you can, my email is dsilberatricia.org. I try to respond, uh, maybe not immediately, but I'll get back to you. Uh, okay, so we meet next week. This Wednesday night, we have a um, special class, Professor Jonathan Sarna, historian of American history and who's spoken at Drisha in the past. And his daughter Leah is a, one of our employees in charge of the high school program and other things. And uh, his father, Nachum Sarna, used to teach at Drisha, wonderful person. So we have a deep connection to that family. He's talking about history as an American historian and a good one, praying for the president, history and, and, uh, and, and, and halacha. That's what the topic is. Um, so yeah, so everybody's invited to that. We'll meet it next week. And then we have special programs in the end of December, beginning of January, all kinds of things going on. You want to add something, Michael, to that or what? I wanted to say uh, thank you, Rabbi Stilber. It's really wonderful. You're welcome. Thank you. Sure. I just put some links in the chat for anyone who's interested in learning more about either the the bomb lecture on Tuesday or our winter's mind. You can feel free to um, follow those links. They are, um, you know, there's there's plenty of room for both. Uh, so feel free to take a look. We'd love we'd love to have folks there. Thank you. Okay, have a good day, everybody. Bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much.